Talk. We are live on Facebook, and I believe we're live on Sermon Audio. Okay, so you tell me if we really are live. Yes. Okay, so you want me to... Yes. Oh, okay. You you will give me a thumb of authority, won't you? Yes, I will. Okay, the finger of authority has some issues, as you know, but the, the thumb will go in. <laughs> they win. No, you decide, and I will do what you say. Lecture number, go. Okay, well, I did not get the thumb of authority. There, I got two thumbs, so that means that we off, we're off and running. A little business here before I get going, and uh, I, I told everybody... And, and especially you people who are listening to broadcast systems, August 8th is going to be the end of the summer lecture series for us, and we'll be back on September the 12th. Lori and I are bivocational. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got doors to put in, heating systems to put in, cars or suburban and old suburban to get fixed up for the winter. We have lots of work to do. So we're going to need that time off because the summer has been really bad in Alaska. While you guys were burning to death down there in Phoenix, in Texas and California and all of those places, the inversion caused Alaska to be very cold and wet. So we had the coldest summer ever. And with the fact that uh, I had all these kidney issues, that really affected me. So we'll be working, but not at the church for that, uh, those Sundays after next week. So next week we'll have one, and then we'll be back on the 12th of September. Is yes, ma'am. Just visiting the website and sermon audio for any back studies. Yes, yes, yeah. Those of you folks who are just joining us, and I'm going to read a card from somebody here in a second or a letter here. Um, there's all that material that's out there on cliffside.org, and it's out there on YouTube, and uh, not YouTube anymore. It's on Facebook. I know it's on Podbean and all of those uh, platforms. You can find us Cliffside Community Chapel. Okay, well, really fast. Here's something interesting I thought was very cool, and I talked to Kurt, Kurt about it already. I got a letter from a gentleman in, let me make sure I get it right, Virginia Beach, Virginia. His name is Rich, and he said, Dear Personnel at Cliffside Community Chapel. That would be you guys. <laughs> uh, listened on WWCR, Worldwide Christian Radio. So, sending you a great big hug. Well, uh, do, do you have a church bulletin or a disc of a service you can send? And his name is Rich, again, from uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. And we have all kinds of things uh, out there, but most of it is just on the Internet. Is that correct? Is there anything I've left off? Sermon Audio has got a great deal of material, doesn't it, for Cliffside? And, of course, so does uh, Facebook has a great deal of material. So check those out, Rich, and thanks for sending us a little note. It's cool to find out that people that are broad or shortwave listeners are are really out there. We never, we had no idea. We just thought we'd give it a shot, and that was uh, Kurt's idea. Okay, August the 1st, 2021, lecture discussion number 146 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. And so it's more of the same. I've got this, uh, we have the three kingdoms, the animal kingdom, I'm sorry, or the angelic kingdom, the, the animal kingdom, and the uh, mankind, or the human kingdom, humanity. And so uh, we're, I'm building the case with Scripture of the immortalities of animals, the nefesh, the rahah, nefesh, shaya, uh, animals. And so I'm trying to make that case as much as I can. And this is the fourth in the Immortality of Animals series. Last Sunday, lecture number 145, which was July the 25th, uh, 2021, we ended with the volume question of the New Jerusalem, the holy city, uh, the bride of 
the Lamb's wife, the great city, the tabernacle of God, the holy Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above the free Jerusalem and the mother of us all. That is Revelation 21.2, 21.3, 21.9, 21.10, and Galatians 4.26. And, and yes, all of those are names. Those are the names and the, they are the name of the city that comes from above. And the questions immediately hit you in the, in the forehead or the side of the head. Uh, when was this city created? And that, of course, ties into the question of when was the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41, which is on the list. Those of you who are shortwave, broadway, broad, not sorry, shortwave listeners, broadcast listeners, uh, this, this system here that I use, the dry erase board, I ha- I'm, I'm a typical school teacher, so I use a uh, dry erase board now instead of a chalkboard. I, yes, I'm that old. Um, so that is on Facebook, right? We have pictures of this board on those, on those platforms and other places as well. So if you, it's hard to follow along without seeing it. But that's what we're doing. We have a list here and we're going through that list and we've been doing it for quite some time. But now I have moved to the immortality of animals and I kind of selected that out and made it a series in its own. So we ended last week again with this holy city the mother of us all, the Jerusalem that is above, the great city, the tabernacle of God. And and again, those are the names that he calls his city. Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh, the Lord God Almighty himself, through whom all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, John 1, 3 through 4. He comes down with the city. So as the city descends, this is who's in the city. He is the one who sits on the throne of the city of the New Jerusalem. And he, Christ, Jesus Christ himself, declares from the throne something that he says, Revelation 21, 5, while it's descending, I assume, perhaps it has settled on the earth. He says this, Behold, I make all things new. That's the translation that the Greek have decided translates. And of course, remember we had that little section on how much of these translations can we really trust? And you can trust them quite a bit if they're word for word, in my opinion. If they're not, then you have to pay attention to context, everything around it to get the understanding of it. And that's what I'm going to do here today. Behold, I make all things new. Now, you know, if you've been listening, that uh, Christ does not create anything new anymore. He restores what he already created. That is a principle, a foundation, it is, a, it is something that is inviolable in Scripture. So you could have said, Behold, I make all things restored or renewed. So anyway, again, Revelation 21.5. So all things are made through him, and he makes all things new again would be appropriate. Behold, that's a behold. And, and so you have to define new. What does he mean by new, and there are a couple of Greek words. One of them, of course, means absolutely uh, new. The other one means, um, literally translates as restored and restoration and restitution. It's also, uh, it's called uh, apokatesis. It's a heretical position out there that you'll find as well. Never mind, I'll get off track here. But there are words that are, that have been chosen to say what they believe Christ meant. And you have to, as a student of Scripture, make sure that the translators got it as correct as possible, which means you have to go into the Old Testament and find out the compliments. 
Behold, I make all things new is fine, as long as you define new correctly in my view. Anyway, as this new city of Jerusalem descends, uh, which is after Satan has been cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.10. And again, new city of Jerusalem. We're not sure whether how he's made this city. What did he use? Because he reuses as much as he can and makes it restore. This new city of Jerusalem descends, and that is, again, after Satan has been cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.10, after the final Magog-Gog-Satan uh, uh, rebellion. There's two Magog-Gogs. Know your Magog-Gogs. This is the second one. This is the big one. Uh, Ezekiel 38 is the other. So he, after the satanic rebellion and the deceiving that he does, he's able to deceive again. Uh, then the new city of Jerusalem comes down. And it is after the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, or the second death. So there's a timeline here. So, uh, understand all of that. And then comes this city that descends. Christ begins to speak now. As it's coming down in a loud voice, behold, the tabernacle of God. I should jump up and down. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. And he there is God and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 3 through 4. John 1, 14, Zephaniah 3, 8 through 9, Isaiah 7, 14, Leviticus 26, 11, Leviticus 23, 33 through 44. The former things have passed away. All of those verses will give you information about what God says, what Christ says when he's on the throne as the city is coming down to the earth from above. That was Christ's first statement as the city of the, of the free comes down from heaven, from the throne. His first behold. He has two beholds. That was the first one. His second behold is Revelation 21.5, which we mentioned already. Behold, I'm the one that makes things new, restored. I am the one who brings restitution, restoration. So there's two ways to, to look at that. And I'm obviously, oh my goodness, that's the first time we've had a phone call during this. Uh, it is one of my children. We will cut them out of the will. <laughs> he doesn't want anything that I have already, so it's not a big deal to him. You can guess which which child that is. Yes, it's it's the one that has promised to bulldoze his house when, when we give it to him. We always threaten, we're going to give you this house. And he says, that's okay, I'll, I'll rent a bulldozer. <laughs> so I can't win that battle, doggone it. Anyway, the second behold is Revelation 21.5. From the throne, he says it from the throne, that is the new Jerusalem. Again, which we got to define new. Everywhere you see new, you have to decide what new means. What you think is new. If you think it's different new, it's not different new. It's the same that is, that is new, if that, if that makes any sense. <laughs> that, that has tremendous impact if you go wrong there. There will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth restored. He makes it very clear. He's not going to recreate it. He is going to take the raw materials. I've said this many times. He's going to take the materials. He knows what, where all the particles are, if there in fact is any particles. And he reuses everything. And he, that's how he means make it new, make it restored. There will be a new heaven, a new earth restored, and all things will be restored because creation ended Genesis 1.31. 
Creation has ended. Again, Genesis 1.31. There is no creation. Uh, conservation of energy and matter and mass and all of those things uh, we've covered many times. Obviously, because this is the ultimately what I'm discussing here is the volume question. The volume question of the holy city. I'm emphasizing the definition of all things. The volume question is, of course, why is the city of the Lamb's wife 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles deep, and 1,500 miles wide? Why did he make it like this? What is he thinking? If you want to think of it this way, it's 3,375,000,000 cubic miles. Keep in mind, the oceans of the earth are only 320,000,000 cubic miles. So the new city, quick math, the tabernacle of God has ten times the volume of the current oceans that we see around us in the world today. So we've got to repeat the question, what is Jesus Christ thinking? What is God thinking? Why so much volume? I answered some of that in the past. I've talked about how many platforms there are, and you can make your own ideas. And they're not mansions in the way we think of mansions. They are huge pieces of material. I believe there's at least 300. There could be 250. There could be 200. There could be 150. Who matter? Who knows? But there's a tremendous amount of volume, and that means there's a tremendous amount of space. Why so much space? What will he do with it all? Uh, what is God thinking? Why like this? Better question than that. Does Jesus Christ know how much resurrecting he will be doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, the answer is yes, duh. <laughs> yes, duh is, is a word. And if it's not a word, it should be a word. Yes, duh. Not yes, dear. Don't confuse that. But yes, duh. Note that the one who resurrects Everything has built a city that is three billion three hundred. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm three billion three hundred seventy five million cubic miles of space. He decided he needed that much space. How smart is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God of creation? He's a lot smarter than we think. Because we're idiots. I am proposing that the dimensions of the new city of Jerusalem are reflecting the resurrection of the occupants. The creation time ended at Genesis 131, as I just said. What remains to be fulfilled now is resurrection. The focus is on resurrection. The focus was on creation. Now it's on resurrection. Once creation ended, the only powerful element that it remains, frankly, is resurrection. Therefore, the city of God, think of how much matter was was created. There was a tremendous amount of information created. Now think about how much information, how much matter, if you want to think of it in a particle sense, but it's more than particle, isn't it? How much has got to be resurrected? You could see that there's a tremendous amount. Well, it's an uncalculable number. No one could ever conceive of how much information was created, nor can they conceive how much information is resurrected. But he can. And he says, I need a city that's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, and 1,500 miles high. That's what I need. Because the next job that I'm going to do that's unbelievable in scope is resurrection. The only thing that even approaches it, obviously, might might be equal to it. We'll have to find out when we get there is creation. Therefore, the city of God, the holy city, the city of which wipes away every single tear 
is the city of the resurrected. It is the city of the res- resurrected to life. Everyone's resurrected. The issue is what, how God defines life. As I've said before many times, he defines life as destination, as the new city of Jerusalem. If you have life, you are a citizen of that city. If you do not have life, you are a citizen of the lake of fire. And you have a role to play. You can reject the hand and the blood of Christ. He will let you do it. He'll let you do what you wish to do. You have will. How much will remains to be determined. So this is the city that wipes away every tear, and that means it's the city of resurrected, of the resurrected, the resurrection. The, every tear, all the crying, has to be wiped away, and all of that. The only thing that can do that is resurrection. Consider that for a moment, and I'm going to divert to Zechariah uh, two, uh, verse four, but I'm going to go all the way back to verse one. So let me do that. Zechariah two, one through four. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line was in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what it's with and what is its length. Now, did you notice that? Let me repeat it. And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel, in my opinion, who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls. So it'll be the same as towns without walls. So you're going to have to know what that means. Because of the multitude of animals, and I'm sorry, multitude of men and animals in it. For I say to the Lord, ah, messed that up, start again. Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and animals in it. For I say the Lord, for I say, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now remember, this is the one who is also coming down in the new city of Jerusalem. Whatever happened to the old city of Jerusalem, and, the, and we'll get into that next week in the millennial city of Jerusalem. But note the behold, a man with a measuring line intends to measure Jerusalem to reveal its size. And again, note again that its height is not mentioned at all, is it? Only the depth and the width. So this is not the new Jerusalem from above, but it is the millennial Jerusalem. So there's a thousand year period where Christ rules on earth and this is the millennial Jerusalem from which he rules. So who is the man and why is he measuring uh, Jerusalem? Uh, Ezekiel also saw the man. So I have two guys that saw. I have uh, Zechariah and I have Ezekiel. So we just go get the information and we figure out who the man is. 40 verse 3 I believe is what it is. Let me see. I'll start at 40 verse 1. In the 25th year of our captivity at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, and in the 14th day, and in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He took me there. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. This is the millennial Israel. On its south, and on its, let me make sure I've got the right verse. Yes, I do. On its toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had the line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. Okay? So we, we, Ezekiel saw the same man, and he said, this is, this is a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. 
Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 44, 2 through 5, identifies this man clearly. I, don't, I won't read it. I just want to start with 43. He, he defines him as the Lord, the YHVH, the angel of the Lord, Exodus 3, 2, who is Christ Jesus himself, the I am that I am, 3.14. So Ezekiel, when you put all the pieces together with Zechariah, is telling you that this man with the measuring line, that's Christ. That is the angel of the Lord. That is the second person of the triune Godhead of the Elohim. Jesus Christ is the Lord God of creation, the light of life. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, John 8, 12. And he has come to measure Jerusalem. Now, why is he doing that? Why is he doing it? Does he know how big it is? He's omniscience. Answer, yes, duh. Yes, duh. So he has a reason. What would be the reason? He gives us his reason. He's measuring it because he wants you to know that Jerusalem is going to be occupied. It's going to be inhabited. And it's going to be inhabited as towns without walls. So what does that mean? Towns without walls is an idiom that's, that, that uh, there are cities that are so large that walls cannot be built to contain the people who reside there. So they are without walls. You can't build a wall around them. There is so many people. So many saved people will live in Jerusalem during the millennium that Christ himself must be the protective wall of fire. Notice the implication there. Obviously, he has to be the glory in her midst. He has to protect Jerusalem in the millennium, in the thousand-year reign. Why does he do that? Well, because the millennium still has sin, Revelation 27 through 10. How, how come it has sin? Why does it have sin? Why, don't, why not just end it right after the tribulation? He doesn't. He has another thousand year, a seventh day, a seven, a seven millennial period. You have seven millennial periods or seven thousand years. That is his format. But who are these inhabitants that are in the city? That there's so many of them. It's my opinion that they are the believers. And of course, never mind. Once I say it's my opinion, that settles, settles the argument, right? Maybe not. But I believe that they are the believers in Jesus Christ who refuse the mark of the beast and therefore survive the tribulation, or survive the tribulation even though they uh, refuse the mark of the beast. And they're Jews and they're Gentiles, and they are a multitude. There are millions of them. Jerusalem becomes a great number, of a population so massive that it is overflowing. And obviously there is a spiritual message within this vision of Zechariah. Zechariah's vision of the measuring line, it's called in, <coughs> in academia, theological academia. Never have the word academia behind you if you can avoid it <coughs> in its current state. It's almost always an insult. Anyway, that's politics. I'll get away from that. Zechariah has eight visions. The first being the vision of the riders and their horses. The second is this vision of, of the measuring line. In order to gain superintendence of the meanings of any of the singular visions, all eight have to be studied together and categorized and all the pieces gathered up and accumulated and found in the New Testament as well. Then you can figure out what all those eight visions are. Any other system won't work. As you know, the system is always the same that way. Study the parts individually and then evaluate the totality, figure out how they testify of Christ, and then find their complements in the New Testament. If you have that process, you will become successful in understanding what the Bible is really saying. Anyway, for today, 
Jesus Christ is measuring his millennial city of Jerusalem that is overfilled with saved believing people who, as an aside, will not die. If you enter into the millennium, you will not die. So you have a thousand years and there's no possibility that you die. We'll cover that next week. And so they will not die during the thousand year reign of, on earth by Christ. And to clarify this a little bit, the theological academics, I'm insulting them again, have suggested that it's going to be 100 to 200 million Christians saved in the tribulation. These are people who are, who, who are testified to, who are witnessed to by the 144,000 and the two witnesses, and of course themselves. There's 100 to 200 million that survive. That is the mathematics that you'll find that's most traditional. They will withstand the tribulational genocide inflicted by the Antichrist. I'm not proposing that all of those, all 100 to 200 million, are residents of the millennial city of Jerusalem. I don't think they are. What I'm saying is, though all will enter the millennial age and, and will eventually become citizens of the new Jerusalem, which is the eighth day, the restoration of all things, the eternal state, um, some of these 100 to 200 million are in the holy, I'm sorry, are, are in the city of Jerusalem and some are elsewhere. Again, the, the, the differentiation is the nuance here is those who enter the millennium versus those who are born in the millennium. Because there will be many who are born in the, in the millennium. Again, uh, Revelation 20, their number is the sand. Okay, what's the point? Yay, a point. Jesus Christ says a city of Jerusalem is teeming with saved people and animals. That's what he says. And animals. It's behema. Behema or behema is the word. Ubehema. Here is where being aware of the Hebrew words becomes important. You don't have to pronounce them. I, I'm, I'm not good at pronouncing these things. Bahama, if I get there, Bahama is a feminine singular and it's translated animal 33 times. It's translated animals 27 times, beasts 44 times, beasts plural 31 times. And use your phones and add all of that up and you get 135 times that Bahama is translated animals. 49 times the translators decided against animals. They decided on cattle. Why did they choose cattle? But most of your Bibles will say cattle. Cattle. There's one translation that says livestock. And again, the word is Bahama. Or Bahama. Not Bahama. That's an island. Never been there. Won't go. Why did they choose to say cattle? I'm asking for a friend, but you all know I, I, well, I got no friends, so. So that's me that's asking again, once more. Why try to obfuscate? Bahama in the biblical text refers to horses in the Bible, donkeys, oxen, cows, sheep, goats, specifically, and to animals and beasts generally. That is its overwhelming translation. But here they said cattle or livestock. Yes, so, man in the front row. So... That's repetitious. There's humans too. 
Yeah. <laughs> Dave, Dave pointed out that uh, us humanity uh, is, is described as mucus in the front and dingleberries in the back. And yes. we're, we're a sheep. So all of those things is what Bahama in the, in, the, uh, in, in the Bible refers to. But yet for some reason the translation says cattle. Overwhelmingly. Now the question becomes is do some of these translations have an agenda? Do they have a belief system? Do they have a position on the, on the, on the animal kingdom? Then, so they try to make it conform to that position. And so they deliberately did it. That would be really unfortunate. It's, it's okay. It doesn't hurt the fight because it's, the fight is overwhelming. I hope that becomes obvious in, in a few weeks, if not this week. You are likely familiar with Job 40, 15 through 24. And what is that? Yes, you are right again. Those of you who are here, both of you. That is the behemoth. Okay. The feminine plural of behemoth. Though the behemoth or behemoth is referred to as a masculine singular in Job 40, 15 through 24 in its pronouns, but it is the feminine plural in its actual name. So we have a, we have what's considered an inconsistency. Why do I mention stuff like that? Because there's one person out there in the vast internet and shortwave audience that's interested in that. And if I don't bring it up, they will attack. No, they won't attack. They will write me and say, you forgot. Or they will call me and say, you don't know what you're doing, old, wretched, ranting man. So I have to, it's kind of, it's a prophylactic is what it is. It's a barrier. I'm trying to keep myself from getting hit with arrows. For the rest of us that are not interested, if you agree with animals or animals the 135 times, and the plural is referred to in Zechariah 2.4, um, that's why I say the plural. But So if you agree with animals the 135 times, uh, and you see that it would be accurate to make it the plural in Zechariah 12.4 because of the word multitude. If I have a multitude of animals, almost uncountable, i got animals. I don't have an animal. I don't have the singular. But it's okay. If you want to call it the multitude of men and animals, that's, per, that's fine. If you, or if you prefer multitude of men and animal, you can do that. Or man and animal. You can singularize both, but it doesn't change the multitude. The multitude implies the plural. Either way, the verse plainly states that Jerusalem is filled to the brim, overflowing with men and animals, and specifically for today, animals, because we're in the immortality of animals. Why is it important that animals are overwhelmingly represented in the millennial Jerusalem? Answer that question while I go on. More evidences for you to consider. Genesis 1.24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the nephesh, or the living souls, According to its kind, vahima, animals and creeping things, and wahato, beasts of the earth. Wahato associates with hayat, okay, which is prominent in Genesis 2.19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every hayat, every beast of the field, every, 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 every. How many times I got to say every? Every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would name them. That's what it says in 2.19. So that Hayat is very important because you see it show up in 1.24. And again, 2.19. Putting Genesis 1.24 and 1.25 together with Zechariah 2.4 makes it beyond doubt that Zechariah 2.4 is describing the millennial Jerusalem as being a sanctuary, a garden. With an animal population, it's going to be uncountable. And of course, the second Adam, which is Christ, the last Adam, which is Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, 
He's going to be the federal head over both men and animals. Christ's throne is going to be in Jerusalem during the millennium. That's his plan. And we should expect that Jesus would fulfill, he would restore the original structure of the first Adam's position, wouldn't he? That's what he's doing. He is in Jerusalem, and guess what he's surrounded by? Animals. And men. Mankind. We should expect that Jesus would do that. He would restore. He would put in restitution, restoration, the original system that Adam had. Because he's the second or the last item. And I previously mentioned that 1 Corinthians 15.39 and 1 Corinthians 15.40. Ah! Trying to keep going fast because I've now got broadcast. I understand Kurt gets rid of all my mistakes. Is that right? I think it's so. You can believe that. Okay, that's wonderful. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I may be mistaken there. <laughs> but I, I mentioned previously that 1 Corinthians 15.39 and 1 Corinthians 15.42 are generally isolated from one another by theologians. They separate them apart. They say, this goes over here and this goes over here. That's what they do. When it's obviously not the case, they are to be read as a unit. And then it also includes 1543. So 39, 42, and 43, and 40, 41. Just put them all together and you will find it all. If you separate them all, if you separate them out, uh, then you're doing it on purpose or you're doing it uh, without understanding. Do we have to shut the windows to stop that noise from bleeding in? We're fine? Okay. So 1539 describes the bodies of animals and the bodies of man. So it says there's a body of animal, there's a body of man. The bodies of birds and the bodies of the, of the great sea creatures, Genesis 120. 1542 says we got the bodies of animals, we got the bodies of man, we got the bodies of the birds, we got the bodies of the great sea creatures. So also is the resurrection. Puts them all together. So also is the resurrection. What does he mean by that? If I got all these bodies, so also is the resurrection. I think it's pretty obvious what he means by that. He means so also is the resurrection. The dead bodies sown in corruption, the dead bodies, what dead bodies? I got the bodies of animals, the bodies of man, the bodies of birds, and the bodies of the great sea creatures. The dead bodies, those dead bodies sown in corruption will be raised. That's what he said. Resurrected in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, 1543. You put those together, you have more evidences of what he intends to do and why the city of Jerusalem is 1500 miles, huh? It has to have its own atmospheric uh, system, it has to have its own gravitational system. And you will see the uh, atheistic community just mock this. It's impossible. You can't. This is against the laws of God. Well, you just gave me the answer. They're the laws of God. His laws, not your laws. They're not. uh, They are subject to him. Okay. The second Adam resides in his garden, and he intends to restore Eden to its rightful state, which is why Jesus spends so much time at the Garden of Gethsemane. Those of you who wonder, why does he keep going up to that garden, olive garden, olive press? What is he doing there? He is going there because he's the second Adam. And it tells you the location of that particular place, doesn't it? And if that's not enough, may I reintroduce 
Psalm 36, 5 through 7, which is amazing. Let me, go, let me read it instead of trying to fight it because my eyes are gone. I'm so gone I can't even find where I'm going. But this is astonishing. Again, what am I doing? I'm trying to bury you in information. I'm trying to back a dump truck up and blast you with everything I've got. So that you will say, not everything I have, everything the Bible has. So you will say, wait a minute. So where do I want to start on this? Uh, 35, 5 through 7. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches through the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountain. Your justices, your justice, your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you save man and beast. And again, the word is behemoth. Animals. You save man and animals. You behemoth. How precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. How precious your loving kindness, O Lord. Just think about his loving kindness and how precious it is. So make a list now. We have, I don't have, couldn't put it on the board, so you got to do it in your, in, in the mind here. Good luck with that if you're me. I have mercy. I have faithfulness. I have righteousness. I have justice. And I have salvation. And I have living kindness. God is the God of mercy, faithfulness. He is merciful. What, this is a list. What is he saying here? Faithfulness, merciful, faithful to both man and animals. His justice is deep beyond our understanding. His righteousness also so great that we cannot grasp it. Because of these, it says, O Lord, because, you want to put because there, go ahead. Because you have all of these things, mercy, faithfulness, righteousness, judgment, uh, justice, because you save man and beast. That's the conclusion. And then here is the, the epilogue. How precious is your love, O God, your loving kindness. How precious is his love for what? The conclusion, for man and animals. You cannot separate man from animals in this context. You just can't. God does not separate them. It's a declarative statement. His love for man and animals is precious. So begin to evaluate what that means. It's my position when you consider all of these attributes in Psalm 36, uh, 5 through 7, when you consider all of them as a group, all of these Characteristics of God provided as the cause, it's provided as a cause that is traceable to the event. The event is, is that he saves man and beast. Saves man and ubehema, animals. In other words, the event is his loving kindness for man and animals. His loving kindness is proven by his salvation of both. Saying it another way, because he is merciful, faithful, righteous, and just, he saves man and animals from death, which proves his precious loving kindness. And that, I think, is obvious and absolutely logically clear. Psalm 36, 5 through 7 proves then that animals have to be what? If he loves them and his love is precious and he saves them, then what, have, what do they have to be? They have to be resurrected. How can you read those descriptions of God and come to any other conclusion? But they do. 
No other conclusion other than except for the resurrection of the innocence of animals. In other words, to repeat the thesis from the first lecture of this series, the animals have, they had no, they have no guilt. They had no culpability. They didn't re reject Christ. They would never reject Christ, Mark 1. They don't. We'll get into more of that as we go along. Balaam's uh, donkey, for example. They do not reject Christ. They believe him. And again, the next lecture that I do, we're going to talk about what he's likely to do with the animals. What kind of capabilities will they have? There's, there is all kinds of evidence in Scripture of what he will do with them. We know that he's going to do something to us. How much, how much enhancement are we going to get? What is the difference between a, a, a body sown in dishonor and one raised in glory? What's the difference? What do they look like? If we are sown in disorder and, and dishonor and raised in glory, so also the animals. They will be raised in glory. What does that mean? Culpability lies with the angelic realm and with mankind. The animal kingdom was and is faultless in that regard. They are the ones therefore sacrificed, as we covered before. They have to be. No other person, no other being could be sacrificed except for the innocent in this case, the animals. His justice alone, his goodness alone, brings the only possibility to the front. He's going to, he's going to resurrect them. His loving kindness tells you he will resurrect them. Everything, his mercy, his justice, it's a great deep, a great deep is Genesis 1, 2, right? Okay, so we got this test. His word repeatedly testifies that this is true. That being the immortality of animals. And the test at Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 22 is that the immortality of animals is a fundamental, essential doctrine. You have to know it. It's critical that you know it. It's a test. Every man has to take the test. All of men, women, they have to take the test. Okay, obviously I'm proposing that the millennial Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem from above, the holy city, are related. They have a connective intentionality. What I mean is that the millennial city of Jerusalem is a portraiture of the eternal Jerusalem. So they're related. One's a, a model, if you wish to think of it that way. Ezekiel chapter 40 through, chapters 40 through 48. So you got, you got 40, 41, 49, no, never mind, 40 through 48. Zechariah chapters 1 through 10, Joel 3.18, Psalm 46.4, Zechariah 14.8, all provide information about the millennial kingdom, the millennial Jerusalem, sorry. The measuring, the millennial river, there's a millennial river. The gates, the trees, the Dead Sea is going to be returned to life. That's in the millennium. There's healing waters and healing trees. The dwelling place of the Lord, it's called, the place of his throne, the place of his soles of his feet. The name of the city shall be the Lord is there, YHVA Shammah. There's walls of this millennial city that are defined and, and measured, and, and we understand exactly how they are designed. So for today, though compare Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel, and Psalms, Revelation 21, 1 through 8, that's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The parallels, the complementation is unmistakable. The, the two of them are obviously whoever designed one designed the other or built one and built the other or changed one into the other, which you would recognize immediately, I think. So again, look at these two together 
and see that there's so much similarity and yet there are some differences. And that returns us to Zechariah 2.4, being that the current subject here is the immortality of animals. How am I doing for time? Pretty good. Zechariah 2.4, as we have established earlier today, reveals an uncountable multitude of Bahama, animals within the millennial city of Jerusalem. What does that mean? Why does he do it? Does he have to have animals there? Answer is yes. Why? Psalm 36, 5 through 7. Justice. Lovingness. Loving kindness. Why are so many animals in the earthly city? What kind of animals are they? Obviously, the earthly millennial city of Jerusalem is testifying of something that is going to come in the new Jerusalem. So the millennial Jerusalem, in my view, and I'm right, though. I had actually some uh, a woman tell her husband, did I tell you this, guys, already? He called me a brilliant theologian. He really is. He's incredible. And I won't embarrass him because it's even though I'm tempted. But his wife said, quit arguing with him. He's always right. <laughs> I, I love this woman. I even told him so. I said, we like you, but we love your wife. <laughs> anyway, you know that's all a joke. Why are there so many animals in the earthly city? Because the earthly millennial city of Jerusalem is testifying of the new Jerusalem, which Christ sits on the throne as well. He not only sits on the throne, he's the light of the whole city there. He dwells in his city that he built for all of those that he wishes to put in there, that have accepted his blood, and that are innocent. The behold... Revelation 21, 3, the tabernacle of God, God himself will dwell with his entire multitudes of living beings that have his breath of life, who are resurrected to life. That's what's happening in the New Jerusalem. That will be the in that that's the eternity. That's the restoration of all things. That's the eternal state. That is, again, the New Jerusalem, the holy city, which to replay, it repeat explains why it is a cube 1,500 miles high. In height, depth, and length. It's three-dimensional. Whereas the millennial city is two-dimensional, having just length and breadth. One is a facsimile. The other is the antitype and the type, if you wish. One is the fulfillment of the, uh, of the portrait, portraiture. Obviously, if the millennial Jerusalem has animal inhabitants and saved human inhabitants... And there's a great multitude of each. What is the logical conclusion, extension of that fact? How much more, how much more greater will the multitudes in the great city, the New Jerusalem, be? He's giving you a picture that the city of Jerusalem in the millennium is overwhelmed by people and animals. How much more will... That overwhelmingness, you can add ness to anything and make it a word. How much overwhelmingness is going to occur in the New Jerusalem? It's, it's going to be astonishing. I get this question all the time. Where is he going to put all the mice? Where is he going to put all the rabbits? Believe it or not, believe it or not, he thought of things. He's omniscient. He has a plan. And, and your idea of a mansion is a house, a condominium, a townhouse, a zero lot line. I don't know what your idea is. That's not his idea. 
you think really small. You think, well, I'm going to have a big house. Man, yay. And I hear preachers all the time, you're going to have a huge house, you're going to have a motor home, and you're going to have all this furniture. Oh, what rhymes with crap? Can I say that? <laughs> it's not how God thinks. He wants the Garden of Eden. How many Garden of Edens is He going to make to hold all of this? Yeah, why wouldn't you watch one one? And now, obviously, we're going to share them. They're huge. As I explained last last week, they're just they're unbelievable scale. No, you don't need a house. What are you going to do? Have a pool table, a card table, and running water? No. Like TV. Yeah, oh yeah, going to have TV and computers, oh, yeah. right? We're going to play video games. Go, go, go. <laughs> if there's going to be a place that plays video games nonstop, it will not be the New Jerusalem. It might be uh, Matthew 25:41. Never mind. Okay, where am I before I run out of time? Got to hustle. How much more is going to be, start thinking that way, how much more will the greater multitudes be in the great city, the holy Jerusalem? He calls it the great city. He means it. Genesis 1.28 provides a template for which God intends or what he desires. Let me give it to you. Then God bless them. Stop right there. Who is them? Then God bless them. Uh, Adam and the woman. And it's going to be in the them. The, 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 the living sea creatures are going to be in the them. The birds of the air and the living souls, the living beings, the animals of the earth. Genesis 1, 20 through 31. They're all going to be, when he says God bless them, that's the context. Genesis 1, 20 through 31. Who's the them? He says bless them and then be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. That's what I want you to do. Fill the earth. Now, that certainly applies to the animals and all those with his breath of life, the Ruach, Nafash, Shaya. Granted, Adam and the woman have responsibility, but all were blessed and were to fill the and multiply. Fill. There's two thems there. God blessed them and said to them. There's two of them. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and move about on it. Now, your Bible is going to say subdue. It's not what it says. It says move about on it. Subdue does not com- convey the literal meaning of the Hebrew there. That's why, again, you've got to start saying to yourself, I have a translation. Am I, did the people, as honorable as they may have been, as, as wonderful and as, as enthusiastic and as competent as they were, and blessed by God to do it, you have to be careful. You have to look at the context more than the translation. And find the New Testament and find Christ and all of that, right? Compare Genesis 1.28 with Genesis 9.1-4. through 4. Adam and Noah. Noah was ordered, do not eat the lifeblood of the animals, Leviticus 17.11. Because it symbolized. What did it symbolize? Don't eat that blood. If you do, big problems. I'll cut you off, God says. Why? Because it symbolizes the lifeblood of the, amb- of the animals. At the least, it symbolizes the Ruach, Nefesh, Shaya. The immortality of the animal. At the least it does that. And that connects Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 9, 1 through 4 with Ecclesiastes 3.18. The test. Don't eat the blood. Figure out what the test is. Same thing. 
for today, reflect on God's desire to fill the earth. How much more will the restoration of all things, the eternal state, the eternal city, be filled? Because you think it's going to be empty? Lots of people go, oh, there's not going to be anybody in here. Everybody's going to be in 2541, lake of fire. This is be just me here. 1,500 miles high. He will surely, and don't call me surely, fill the holy city of God with his animals. He will create different, new, restored animals from dust. No, he won't. He will not do that. He doesn't do that. Creation has passed. This is the time that is coming of resurrection. There is no more creation. Stop it. He's going to give me a different... It'll be a dog. It'll kind of look like my dog. It won't be my dog. No. It's going to be Abigail. Because it's the time of resurrection. Okay, run out of time. No. Not seven minutes? Okay. Run out of Okay. Now I'm going to enter into the expeditious phase of the lecture. Also referred to as, how many questions will this guy ask and never answer? Part. <laughs> how are... How are you doing? I've got to know. You guys are going to represent the entire vast, vast Internet audience. If I asked you to write a paper and answer, how are you doing with the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18? How much could you give me? The immortality of animals is a critical, fundamental document, uh, doctrine, sorry, truth of Scripture. Do you know why? I'm going to give you a hint. Psalm 36.6 or Psalm 36.5-7, sorry. Why does God test mankind with this animal test? What's he wants you to know? And if you don't know it, why is that a problem? If you do know it, why is that a blessing? Next, the seemingly off-topic topic question. If there is no existence for the ruach, nefesh, shaya, animals, the living beings, then what's the point of the sacrificial system? Why would you have a sacrificial system? If annihilationism is true, and it's not, it's, what's that word that rhymes with crap? Okay, it's not true. Stop it. The substituting of an animal that has no existence for the sins of Israel is futility. It's pointless. Do you see why? What is the sacrifice here? What I mean by that, what is being sacrificed? If the animal has no resurrection, then it has nothing. It has no existence, right? It doesn't have resurrection. It's not going to be resurrected. Then it's never had any existence. It never had any life. All that it had is nothingness. Waiting to be exposed is nothingness, to to quote C.S. Lewis. If H is not, then she never was. If the animal is is has no existence, then it never was. It's the same logical system, right? When its death comes, it's, it's exposed as being never a being. It has nothingness. Therefore, the sacrificial system, when you sacrifice a nothingness being, is what? Nothingness. Nothingness. Nothingness for the sins of Israel. Is that your plan? Is that what you think God's plan is? I'm going to take an animal, then I'm going to annihilate, I'm going to sacrifice it for the sins of Israel, even though the animal is nothing. I keep hitting myself a lot. Yeah. Terry says, ow. Obviously, I'm... It gets me frustrated. If there is nothingness, then, then there is no atonement for sin in Yom Kippur. It never happened. But yet it did. So the very fact that Yom Kippur is accepted by God means what about the sacrifice, sacrifice of the animal? That is an immortal being. That's what it means. 
Obviously, Genesis 9, 1 through 4, and Leviticus 17, the sanctity of blood testifies of life, existence, of resurrection. You can't have existence without having resurrection for the animals that were sacrificed. So as you know, and hopefully, maybe, maybe you know, if the ranting old man has done his job, why the resurrection of man and animals defeats the life of Satan? Do you know why? Because it does. That's why you need to know it for one of the reasons, 318, Ecclesiastes. The resurrection of man and animals. If you want to do it this way, the resurrection of animals defeats the life of Satan. Why? Can you answer that question? Why does resurrection shatter the lie of Satan? We're going to end with Psalm 104, 24 through 33. Can I do it? Do I have time, Terry? Let me go fast. Got to go, got to go. This is amazing. If I don't make it, it's okay. I'll do it next week. 104. Here we go. Fast. 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great, there, there the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you. All of these things in the sea wait for him. Living both small and great, living things, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. What you open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the good Lord rejoice in his work. He will renew the face of the earth. He will restore. He will reestablish those of you who think it's, it's new and different. It's, it's the same. Psalm 104 is the complement to Revelation 21.5. He will renew the face of the earth. Of the earth, creation is past. The time of resurrection is awaits. They all wait. They all wait. These all wait for you. He says. They all wait for God to resurrect him. How many verses in the Bible proclaim the resurrection of man? We haven't even started. Bring a lunch, baby. Is what we got here. Wouldn't you suppose that a test this critical would be everywhere? The answers would be everywhere. All you gotta do, you get the answer book. Read the answers. The answers would be throughout the Bible. This, this again, this is bring a lunch baby. More to come next week. Did I get it done in time? He probably cut out all that stuff where you were making jokes and doing stuff. Okay, he cuts that out too, doesn't he? I think he does. <laughs> that, that tells you his opinion of my... Uh... Oh, where's my glasses? I have to have the glasses on now. Do you know why I have to have the glasses on? Because I have to take the glasses off. Oh. <laughs> it's part of the system, right? Heavenly Father, we just are so grateful that throughout your Bible is this magnificent declaration of your loving kindness, your justice, your righteousness, your faithfulness. You will save every living soul, animal or human, because you give salvation to them. And you rejoice over it. And you'll get them all because you're ready for them. You've always been ready. And it's a magnificent testimony of your character, Father. Please help us endure all the trials and the tribulations that come in this fallen place, this miserable place that we're in. And we wait for, we all wait. We wait for our resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.